Okay. Pray for the best. Yes. <laughs> this one is more my size. It's a hard act to follow. <coughs> Better project. <clears throat> I've lived in many countries and mixed with many men. I've shared the days of sunshine, gone with them in the rain. The fires at evening said we brothers, the fires at evening said we were Soldier I saw weeping beside a dying friend, my officers had said I must hate him till the end, but seeing his grief I knew we were brothers. But seeing his grief, I knew we were brothers. Men sat on the doorstep to see the children play. The gentle way he smiled there would charm your fears away. A stranger he but love made us brothers. A stranger he but love Joy one understands. Our gladness in God's world made us brothers. Our gladness in God's world made us brothers. The words and customs vary like waves upon the sea. One life beneath the surface binds everyone to me. Who knows the truth knows all men as brothers? Who knows the truth knows all men as brothers? Then brothers, why endeavor to set ourselves apart? The fences we've been building squeeze tight upon our hearts. Come sing the truth that all men are brothers. Sing the truth that all men are brothers. 
for joining us. Is my mic on? Yes. Okay. You never know. Um, so it's just so wonderful to come together and share in these ways. And you know, I also wanted to say when we were speaking yesterday that this uh, week is designed more for our family. Those of you who come from afar, don't think that doesn't include you. You may not live at Ananda Village or in a community. But what we'll be talking about today is the social path to self-realization. And that involves community, but that's also a state of consciousness. It's how we live our life day by day that makes us a community resident or not. You can be living at Ananda Village, have been living here for decades, but if you're not living the attitudes, then you're, it's like double exposure, you know, you're here but you're not here. But on the opposite side of the coin, or the reverse side of the coin, you can be living anywhere. You can be living all by yourself in a Quonset hut in Antarctica, but if you're living with the principles that we'll be talking about, then you're, you are part of this family. And I, I love the statement that uh, Swami told us that from Master, <clears throat> he said, who is the closest one to the guru? It could be a name on the mailing list because it's about the consciousness. It's about the purity of your heart. It's about your love for God. It's not about anything outward. So those of you who have made the effort and to come here from a distance, we so honor that and some of you come every year and it's just so wonderful. It's like a family reunion. So with that thought, let's launch into profound thoughts. <laughs> let's see if there are any in there. <laughs> so as we said yesterday, we talked about why Master came to the West and why he came at, that, at this particular time you know, he made a very interesting statement. Master said, if I had come 50 years earlier, people would not have been so receptive because they had to suffer first. And that was with the wars and the depression and everything they went through. 
And that led them to understand that this world will never be a safe haven. It will never give us what we want. And then how do we find that? And then Master came with his incredible carrier wave, both of our gurus and of, uh, please turn off cell phones if people have them on, and an incredible carrier wave of gurus and the incredible mission. And so what we'll be talking about today is, as I said, the social path to self-realization and how communities are an expression, a wonderful uh, laboratory, as Swami often said, Ananda is a living laboratory. And, you know, I'm going to pause one second here. I want to honor someone who's come from probably the farthest distance. Deodan, would you stand up? Deodan? Alzate, per favore. This is Deodan, who will be visiting us for several months. He's the general manager of our community in Assisi. And he's come here for several months to learn with our uh, community management and administration team, Atman, Badri, others, how, how we do it here. So welcome from all of us. <laughs> so communities. Remember when we were saying yesterday that we need to follow in Master's footsteps of what he started to the, ability, to the extent we can. And some of the things we talked about were creating new models of living and of worship and of uh, having the courage and the conviction to follow through on those models. And communities give us the opportunity to do all of that. In the early 1970s, when a team of us were working on Ananda's first master plan, we went into the local Nevada County Planning Commission to get a permit for our development. And they were very conservative. Maybe they still are. I don't really know. I haven't worked with them for years. But at that time, extremely conservative. No growth, no growth. And so we went in there and we said, we want to build a World Brotherhood colony. I mean, we didn't have stars in our eyes, but we, we asked for permission. And they looked in their little rule book and they said, OK, you're a subdivision. We said, no, we're not a subdivision. And they looked in their little rule book again. Oh, you're a condominium. We said, no, we're not a condominium. And they said, well, come back. And they did a little research, and they found a category, planned unit development, PUD. And that's what we did. But we had to create a new model. We weren't really a PUD, but it was the closest thing. And so we had to have the courage and the conviction Yes, this model doesn't exist. Yes, it doesn't exist to have people from all sorts of backgrounds and traditions and experiences and ages and cultures and religions to come together and live in harmony. Who'd ever done that before? But we felt Master, it was his charge that we were to create World Brotherhood colonies. That's what Swami felt his life mission really was. and so. Here we are living this. And as we said, communities are living laboratories. Swami said it's like <clears throat> putting all these unpolished rocks living in community and what it does to the ego. It's like putting all these unpolished rough rocks into a rock tumbler and then spinning them very, very, very fast. And it's not always a fun process. 
it knocks off the rough edges and sometimes it, it's painful and sometimes we want to say stop. I just want to do things the way I want to do them and think the way I want to do them and limit my uh, sympathies to the small group. But communities don't give us that opportunity. And so, well, I, Master said, uh, he had a wonderful article that, from a talk he gave in 1933 called The Art of Living. So he really coined that phrase. Right now there's, <coughs> there are big groups, a uh, very popular movement in India called The Art of Living, but we were there first. <laughs> <laughs> but we, they got the copyrights, so there we are. In any case, Master said in this article, The Art of Living, that in our relationships, we need to obey the God's laws to, in order to use social interaction to bring us to Christ consciousness, to self-realization. We don't think of relationships in terms of divine laws. Yes, you think maybe you know marriage or death or divorce, whatever it may be. But those are man-made laws, those aren't divine laws. Those are social customs that we adopt to kind of keep society from falling totally into chaos. But really what we're looking at, the divine laws we're talking about, are states of consciousness that if lived properly, bring us to self-realization. And we don't think of our relationships in those terms. We think more about compatibility and uh, attraction and so forth. But Master said that even the attraction between partners or companions or uh, friends, that law is, a, that attraction, that principle, is a reflection of God's divine law of attraction. Because everything in the universe is coming together. Everything in the universe is the trees and the plants reach out to the sun. And um, we saw the most remarkable video recently of this experiment that some Chinese high school girls did <clears throat> of taking an, uh, a piece of saran wrap, stretching it a little bit, cracking an egg, just the regular chicken egg in the middle, and hanging it over a, a container, putting it in an incubator, and within two days, boom, 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 there was a little heartbeat. It's the most amazing thing. The power, the, it, started, the, it started to develop, and in a period of time, it, the little chicken hatched in this vessel with saran wrap covered, and it was running around the laboratory. The power of life force, this power that, that animates everything, this we need to see as part and parcel of how we interact with each other. That it isn't just about I like you, you like me. It's about learning to live in such a way that we use our reactions and our thoughts and our feelings towards other people to bring us to God. So it's so much more than how we usually think of relationships. I'm single, I'm married, whatever. It's, it's, we're working with underlying principles that can bring us to God consciousness, to self-realization. And Master talked a great deal about this. 
And in a certain sense, the social path is harder to walk than the meditative path. Because the meditate, okay, I meditated this morning. Okay, I'm a good girl, I'm a good boy. You know, I did my Kriyas and it's measurable. But how we interact with others, people can't necessarily see. Are you angry? Are you jealous? Are you resentful? We can all put a mask up and nobody sees it, but we know, we know. And so if we begin working with divine principles, and of course meditation is part of that because without an uplifted consciousness, we cannot achieve the sustainability of these principles in our lives. So if we begin trying to apply these, and every time we slip, not to come down on ourselves, but just say, I stepped out of the zone. I crossed the, the boundary line there. If we stay in that wonderful boundary of God's principles and laws, that's a path to God. We need to understand that. And communities provide the, an extraordinary opportunity to do this. Remember yesterday we were saying that Master, and Jatish will talk more about how, why Master said we needed communities, but to become a global citizen. Well, yes, that's part of it, but it's the interaction of ego to ego, of uncut rock to uncut rock that hones it down, and we, we see ourselves as we are. Oh, she wanted that house uh, that came available, and I wanted that house, but I think I deserve it more than she does. Well, that's out of the zone. But if we can look, I remember after the fire of an, uh, that burnt, went, moved through Ananda in <clears throat> 1976, it was, it was a remarkable time in so many ways. Virtually everyone lost everything. Few people had their little trailers they were living in, but most of the, all of the homes that were built were gone. And how did Ananda react? It was, it was a remarkable response, both on a community level and an individual level. On a community level, because many of the other landowners in, the, in this uh, area also were burnt out and lost everything. But <clears throat> Ananda went to the county and said, we're not going to sue you. And they all sued and settled for millions of dollars out of court. Ananda said, no, we're not going to do that, even though we sustained the biggest loss. Because we didn't come here to take, we came here to give. And I think that decision, honestly, was what set Ananda on a very sure footing to be one of Master's World Brotherhood communities. We could have gone the other way, but we didn't. And moreover, the people, many people, not the majority, but a few, said, this is too hard. We're not going to stick around to rebuild. We're out of here. And those of us who decided to stay, there was no insurance. There was nothing that we had to fall back on. But a little money came in in donations. And what did we do with that money? We gave it to the people who were leaving because we knew they had a much harder path to trod than we did. We had community, we had guru, we had each other, but they were going off alone. So we gave that money that came in for those people who were leaving. And then uh, it was really such a marvelous time because 
truckloads of uh, free donations started coming in, clothes and toys and bedding and so forth. And I remember, and it all was brought down to the area by Master's Market, truck from the local county people that, excuse me, I need a Kleenex from down below. I have a little cold, I am not ill, I do not have coronavirus, but <laughs> I have At a least little... I'm hoping not. <laughs> anyway, um, these truckloads came in, and I remember my dear friend Durga standing down there day after day amid boxes and boxes of things. She went through every single thing. Oh, this will be for that family because they have a little baby. This will be for this person. This will, and we called her Our Lady of the Free Box. <laughs> and it was, but it was so beautiful because nobody was thinking about themselves. We couldn't afford to. Everyone was just thinking, who needs what the most? And that's the, how it, the flow came. And from there, it was interesting because I mentioned the master plan. We were blocked every step of the way by the local county government. And then the fire happened and we made the decision not to sue the county. After that, all the doors opened. Then the master plan was approved. And I don't think it was a coincidence. So all that to say is, community gives us the opportunity to live these principles. Now, what are some of them? They're self-evident, they're not rocket science, there's nothing you've never heard of before. Things like unselfishness. And what does that mean on the deepest level? The self is usually our point of reference to everything that happens to us. How does this affect me for good or ill? And then as we move Beyond that, through meditation and living in, in an environment that enables you to do that, your point of self-reference begins to expand. And you don't think uh, instinctively, how does, does this affect me for good or ill? You look at the bigger picture. What are everyone's needs? And Master said, when we begin to think of the needs of others before our own, we begin to tread the path to Christ consciousness. It's really kind of amazing because it's not anything magical. It's just that instinctive thing, always thinking, how does this help others before me? And when that becomes a way of life, it, it changes everything. When I was a little girl, <clears throat> I came in with strengths and weaknesses, but I remember always looking with a great deal of curiosity at certain people in my life who were instinctively selfless, and I didn't understand it. I thought, well, that's, why would they do that? That didn't help them. And then as I got older, I began to say, I want to be that way. I like the way that looks. I like how that, the reactions that have in the world. And what we find in community is so many examples. Every day, every day there's an example, many, many, of people living for the welfare of others. And looking around this room, I could name a dozen examples, but we won't personalize it. Just the thought that understanding the way of selflessness is a way, Master tells us, to God consciousness. And 
there's, we all, it's a battle. It's a battle we fight on a cellular level. Because on a cellular level, the instinct is self-preservation. And we think, well, if I give this away, then I won't have it. And then what happens to me? But then you start walking that very razor's edge. Let me try. Let me try to think of the others first. There was a, um, a beautiful story from, that we heard uh, in a recording of Mother Teresa of Calcutta where there was a, a famine in Calcutta and her sisters were delivering uh, small packets of rice to different families. And one sister told her they went to one home and there were a number of children and uh, they were all starving. And, and they brought this packet of rice. First thing this woman did, the sister record, uh, reported, was she divided the packet in half and she said, oh, my neighbors need this more than I do. And she gave half away. And it's though, but that's a beautiful story. But in so many ways, we see this throughout Ananda all the time in all of our communities, this beautiful ability to transcend personal needs. And when you begin living this way with the thought, this is going to bring me closer to God, it becomes, it's reinforced and you want to take the next step in the next step, so that finally you just think, I never want to think about myself and my own needs. We went to, several years ago, um, a school graduation here at the village for the Ananda Living Wisdom School, and um, the teachers would talk about the children and different positive qualities they showed, and I believe it was Narani's class. I'm not positive, but that was my memory. Narani has been teaching in our schools for 40 years, I think, and, and does it with the same extraordinary enthusiasm and selflessness because she loves what she does. She loves serving the God and children. So this little boy got up there in her class, and he was about six years old, not a philosophical stage of life. And he just said, in our class, we play a game, big self, little self. And when we're living in our little self, maybe we're not sharing our crayons or we push somebody on the playground, all the children say, little self, little self. <laughs> and when we do something generous or positive, everyone says, big self, big self. And it reinforces that. Well, do it with yourself. Watch your reactions. That was my little self that just said that. I'm not doing that anymore. And the little boy, to close the story, he said, we did that all year long. Now, I don't even remember my little self very much. And this little innocent child, he wasn't trying to be spiritual or anything. He just had experienced that difference. So unselfishness. Another principle is expansion of consciousness. Master talked a lot about us four and no more. So don't just think about the family or your close ones, but Master said when you can love all equally, that too is a path to Christ consciousness. So he said you should love your neighbors equally as you love your family. You should love your country even, even as you love your neighbors equally. And um, the globe equally. So, always expanding the boundaries. 
And you know, when we first started Ananda, there weren't many people here, maybe you know, a few dozen at the most. And it, it took time for, to really draw the people that understood what was trying to happen here. And so it stayed small for a few years. And some of the people said, um, you know, we don't need all this property. Swami had been going out teaching every weekend to earn the money for, to buy this property. Why don't we sell off all the land? We'll just keep, you know, a few acres that we need for this group. And Swami just said, if you do that, I leave. This community is not for us. It's not for the little tribe that we are now. It's for people yet to come. Just as Master said, I came back to America for those who are yet to come. These great ones, they're not living in time the way we are. They're living in a continuity that is beginningless and endless. And Swami knew this would be something like this because it was Master's mission. Swami also said once uh, to our, our leaders in India, he, towards the end of his life, to, he said, remember, this work isn't my work, this work is in your work. It's the work of Babaji and Yoganandaji. And that's what all of these centers and communities are. They're the work of the great ones. And then, so expansion. And with that expansion, when we learn to move beyond just a small select group of friends that are special to us, what starts to happen is we start to develop a deeper kind of love for others, an impersonal love. And this is something most people don't understand, impersonal love. They think it's cold or aloof or removed. Not at all. Swami lived in personal love, but every person he met felt that he was on their side. One man, some of you remember David Hogendyke. He was a beautiful soul. He passed away prematurely um, training for a triathlon, and uh, anyway, he passed away. But he was a very quiet man, and he said, you know, Swami is my best friend. He was one of Swami's first students in the 1960s in San Francisco. He said, I've hardly ever talked with him, but he's my best friend. And that's impersonal love, when you can just start to realize that it doesn't mean not loving. It means no boundaries beyond personal. Maybe we should call transpersonal love better than impersonal love. And one time we went. Uh, when Swami was living in Assisi, we went <clears throat> to visit him. And I was missing him a lot. Impersonal, personal is something that I struggle with. And um, I was so wanting to get some attention or to just be with him. But he was very busy. And he was trying to finish some projects. And here we'd come all the way from America. And he wasn't giving us the attention that I was looking for. And he, he picked up my thoughts. And he looked at me and he said, Davey, no one is special to me. I'm not even special to myself. And so that's a good way to understand what, what this impersonal love. It's not loving less. It's loving more, just as in the Bible when uh, they said to Jesus, your sisters, your family is here. And he said, who are my brothers and sisters? 
but those who love God. This is our family, that those who love God. And it could be someone you meet on the bus. It could be someone sitting next to you in a waiting room. But if they love God, then the impersonal love of God can flow through you to them. So selflessness, expansion beyond a limited group, impersonal love. And let's see what, ah, sympathy for others. When Master said, when you can look at others and feel their suffering as much as if it was your own, that too is a step toward Christ consciousness, toward self-realization. And this is, we live this in so many ways through praying for others, through uh, reaching out. If you see someone in community, if you see someone is uh, having a health challenge, everyone rallies and brings them meals. If someone's having a financial difficulty, money comes to them. And so it's always being aware that if one person suffers, then I suffer. And you recognize that what we can do to alleviate anyone's suffering is a step toward self-realization. So don't ever, I, when, when we're out and about, I always like to try to keep my antenna open and see who needs energy. I shared this story, but it was quite touching to me that um, a few of us had gone into town for lunch and we went, then afterwards we went to a little coffee shop to have coffee. And I noticed an older woman sitting all by herself. And Latik and I were sitting at the table. The others, other people had gone to the restroom. And I said, oh, I've got to do this. <laughs> so I just went over and started talking to this woman. And I said, you look like a teacher. And she said, I was a teacher. I was a special ed teacher for many years. And we just started talking. And I would, what did I do? And I was a minister to Nanda. But it's like, keep your antenna open. Because God will bring you in association for a reason with people who need sympathy or energy or someone to talk to. And understand it isn't about you being nice. It's about consciously walking that path as a path to personal transcendence and as a path to growing closer to God, to self-realization. So then we need, in that sympathy, we also need to realize that it also means eliminating from our consciousness negative qualities. One of the downsides of community, and we, I have to say, I believe Ananda Village is very free of this, but gossip and criticism and judgment. I, I see that very, very little here. But to look at those qualities in yourself and to watch, you know, somebody, maybe you're tired, someone does something that irritates you and you start running that tape, oh, you know, why did they do that and that was wrong, and just, Try not to go there. Try to say, that is taking me outside of the zone of God awareness. As soon as I criticize my brother, my sister, my friend, I'm stepping outside of the zone. And the more we do that, the more we stay in the zone, 
the more a platform begins rising up underneath our feet that brings us closer and closer to God. The more we step out of that zone, the more we just stay on the soil of this earth and we never transcend. So we can also look at the, as Master spoke of rules. So let's look simply at the great rules of Patanjali, of the yamas and the niyamas, when we look about expanding sympathy. They're just all outlined there so beautifully. Nonviolence, not criticizing anybody, not judging anybody, but to have a benevolent underlying spirit towards everyone. Non-lying. Why do we lie by and large? We're defending our home turf. I'm okay. No, this didn't happen. I'm in, I was in the right. And so the more we do that, the lying, we build a wall. We build a wall between us and reality. We build a wall between our ability to care about others before we care about ourselves. Non-stealing. You don't want to take anything from anyone, not even their good name or their sense of self-respect or their sense of self-worth. That's why gossiping or criticism is such a harmful thing. To always remember that to relate to the best and the highest in everyone. Um, sometimes many of us are in a position where people come to us, they have a question. What do I do? What should I do? Or maybe they don't ask, but we feel compelled to tell them what they should do. <laughs> and remember, I, I have watched Swamiji over many years and from what he said of how master related to people. We don't have to give people the benefit of our brilliant insight or what they should do or how they should live their life. But what Swami would do, he rarely gave people direct advice, but he related to the highest within them. He affirmed their sense of self-worth, of self-respect, and he knew if they could stay in that space, they would make the right decision, they would act in the right way. He didn't need to tell them because they were learning from their own higher self. And so when, if someone you feel is blowing it or something, you don't need, unless they really say, do you think this is right or wrong? But try to just address their higher self and trust that their higher self has just as much hold on truth as your higher self does and honor that. So non-stealing from others, the non-sensuality, to relate to others purely, not to think, what can I get from this person? But just to say, my love for you, and, and in, in relationships, often, of course, there is a sexual component. But nevertheless, that shouldn't be the basis of how we relate to a, a partner or even others in the community, to really sustain uh, a stable, uplifting community life we have to look at those parts of ourselves that reach out in, a, in that way and say, no, that's not part of living, what living in community is about. And then finally, non-greed. Not to try to own anything, not just as we've been saying, this is mine, I have to defend this. But just say, Lord, it's all yours. Whatever you give me, I am happy with. I remember once, some years ago, we had a all community me meeting and some people were kind of uh, 
and you go through cycles where people kind of come up with ideas that really are not in alignment with the higher principles of where brotherhood communities, but you have to go through cycles where people discover this. And so people were talking about creating pension plans and all these different things. And one man, humble, beautiful soul, he just said, you know, I don't want to go there. I'm, I just figure whatever Divine Mother gives me, she knows what I need. If I end up with a shopping basket under a bridge, if that's what Divine Mother wants, then that's what it'll be. And of course we don't live that way. But the thought of living in such a way, living in community, we've always lived on the edge economically, but that's the beauty of it in a way. Swami said, our greatest test will be prosperity. And I don't think he meant that we always had to live on the edge of poverty, but I think what he meant was complacency. We don't have to put out so much energy because we've got this or we've got that. To be, to follow in master's footsteps, we have to put out dynamic, sustained, magnetic energy to build communities and to find God. And so in all these ways, these are operative laws of the social path to God realization. And I'll just close with a beautiful reading uh, from Master. He always says it so much better than we can. This is from Man's Eternal Quest, and it's the chapter, Steps Towards the Universal Christ Consciousness. Master says, develop sympathy and unselfishness if you would expand your consciousness. I have no consciousness of possession. I can leave everything in a moment if God calls, for I am not bound to anything, and yet all things are mine. In Christ's consciousness, the whole world, everyone and everything in it is your own. The whole of space and everything in it belongs to you. When you begin to feel the sensations of others as though they were happening in your own body, you are developing that Christ consciousness. When you cultivate this consciousness and therein understand that everything is yours, you will have no prejudices about race or color. In that consciousness, you feel the love of a million mothers in your heart, not just for a few, but for everyone. You do not imagine it, you feel it. This love that Jesus, Krishna, and all of the great ones manifested, this universal intelligence and love, which is called Christ consciousness. I have to hold back. I was going to high five her, but would have seemed undignified. <laughs> so, many years ago, Swami said to us, the whole of the spiritual path is meant to dissolve the ego. The whole of the spiritual path is meant to dissolve the ego. 
And so the different ways that we're talking this week, the different things that Master brought, are all meant to dissolve the ego. Today we're talking about the social way of dissolving the ego, and the essence of that is the movement from selfishness to unselfishness. Now, I could stop there, that would be the talk, but I know I'm not gonna get away with that, so I'll go on, but that is the essence of everything else that I'm going to talk about. The social way is the movement from selfishness to unselfishness. Tomorrow we're going to talk about service. The way of service helps us burn away the karma and the karmic tendencies of being self-enclosed by giving our energy and help to others. And then on Friday, we're going to talk about the inward path, which has to do more with the movement of energy away from the lower centers, which tend to bring us into ego and selfishness to the higher centers and especially the spiritual eye. But all of it, the whole different ways that we approach it are all meant to dissolve the ego. I'm gonna read some things from Master because, thank you. Um, he wrote an article in the height of the um, depression in 1932, uh, talking about how to burn out the roots of depression. And Davy said yesterday that, that he did not, uh, he was not cowardly in what he said. Boy, that article, he did not hold back. He said things like, the, the industrialists swallow the little fish of the workers, they're like a cat. And then along comes the bigger industrialists and they swallow the cats, they're like tigers. And then along come the banks and they kill off the tigers and take everything to themselves. <laughs> and he was talking about how the banks will loan money and then wait until a poor farmer loses one, misses one payment and swoop in and take his land. He was really going at it. So I'm gonna read a little bit. because the principles are very important. Misunderstanding of the universal laws of peaceful, prosperous living is, res is responsible for depression, famines, plagues, industrial, social, national, man-made cataclysms and wars. International misunderstandings breed in their wombs their satanic offerings of selfishness which is the real cause of all economic upheavals. Selfishness is the wrong mode of living, inaugurated by human beings in the hope of self-interest and happiness. In the final analysis, selfishness has been found sooner or later to destroy the real interest and happiness of man. The remedy is to destroy selfishness, make plain living, and high thinking, the standard of world civilization. He talked quite a bit about the need for communities to provide security for people. Of course, this was in the depression, an extremely, a period of extreme insecurity for, for people. But 
for us as yogis, if we're trying to dissolve the ego, why would he be talking about security? Why not be just as happy to live under uh, a bridge with a shopping cart? Well, the world doesn't work that way. You know, we may be able to affirm that, but we couldn't create a new model for living if we lived in that way. So he talked about the average so-called freeborn American, I'll read it a little more like he probably meant it, the average so-called freeborn American citizen, generally an habitual industrial economic slave, ask him how much he's saved. He will reply, oh well, I'll make some more, pay off my debts, and then save. An animal in a zoo has more security. That's his words. Today, the average American, uh, the, uh, the average of 42% of Americans have absolutely no savings for the time of their retirement. And so what does that, that, that breeds this selfish, that pr selfish principle. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll go on from there, but um, the, because I, I don't want to read too much because I'm going to read for us what he said about the reason for communities because most of us haven't heard that from Master. We've heard from Swami, we've heard from others, but he's going to tell us his vision of communities. And so I'm going to read that in a, in a bit. But so why did Master talk about, first of all, the social way? Because it will dissolve the ego by expanding our sympathies. He talked about communities as being valuable for economics because the desire in this article, he really went after the luxury, the, the tendency of Americans to seek out luxury. And he said that that driving force to want more than what you need, the driving force of greed that is propelled by the um, marketing of, if you look around, the marketing of companies to drive in the consciousness of people the desire for more than what they need forces them into a kind of a conveyor belt of working and working and working, never being able to save, never being able to live within their comfort zone because they're constantly trying to achieve and reach out for something more. And so he talked about the economics of cooperative communities, of world brotherhood communities, of plain living and simple thinking. No, plain, plain thinking and simple living. It's the industrialists that have it the other way. Now, please understand, Master was not talking about becoming successful or having wealth. He was talking about the tendency of selfishness. We have many people, many, many people in Ananda have considerable wealth, but the beautiful thing is that they use that wealth to help other people. And it's all about wealth is just energy. 
Money is just energy. But if you have an excess of energy and use that to increase your selfishness, you tread the downward path into ego. If you use it to help others and expand and share, then you tread the upward path into, um, in, into Christ consciousness. And so Master talked about the economics of World Brotherhood communities that allow simple living and high thinking and allow people to have more time to share and to be able to work with, with uh, the, the basic question that we came into this world of how to uplift our consciousness, how to expand it, how to dissolve the ego. And so economics were a part of it. Security, as I said, that's another part of it. You know, in economics and security, I have two brothers. Now those brothers, one is an architect, the other is a professor at an art college. They probably, in their lifetime, have earned five times, 10 times as much as I have in my lifetime. In terms of security and of lifestyle, they don't even begin to approach any of us living here. We live like billionaires. Who else has 750 acres of land that other people take care of them, care <laughs> for them? Beautiful views, wildlife, friendly neighbors. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And all of that is possible as soon as you do one tiny little thing. It's all it takes. You shift from mine to ours. Soon as you make that shift, that expansion of your consciousness from this is mine. A friend of ours, an architect, said that the typical suburb with the picket fences, he said those picket fences represent palisades that make that house defensible from a military point of view. And so you see that all of those little separate things. Symbolically, that says mine, and you cannot encroach upon mine. If you do that, the consciousness shrinks. And if you say ours, and you take down those picket fences, of course, you have to do more than just the little white stakes in the ground. You have to take down your own picket fences. As soon as you do that, the whole world opens up. You become a billionaire, a trillionaire, a gazillionaire, because you become a true citizen of God, and God has everything in the universe, as Master was saying in that. Your security, your economics, they all begin to take care of themselves as soon as you make the shift of expanding your consciousness. And of course, the primary reason is for spiritual reasons. Because when we get out of this I kind of um, conveyor belt or, or, you know, the little wheel that the rat has to run on, uh, when we get off of that, then we have in community, but Ananda community is everywhere. It isn't localized. We have the support and the upliftment and the models of other people. 
So now I'm going to read what Master said about community. He said, this is how it should be worked out. <laughs> Groups of 25 young married couples and singles, single people, should strive hard and concentrate their soul's force by living very economically for five years until each couple has $10,000 in cash. Now, he's talking in 1932. So anything he says, you have to multiply by about 18. I checked the figures. <laughs> so 10,000 is, so each couple has $180,000 in cash. This multiplied it by 25 would make a trust fund of 250,000. You have to multiply that. Some of this should be used to buy and build 25 small cottages by their own labor on 20 acres of community-owned farmland. All butter and milk should be obtained from homebred cows or goats. <laughs> That's for you, Verani, if you're listening. Um, and vegetables should be grown by members of this spiritual farm on their own land. Lambs should be grown for wool, for dresses, socks, and other articles. Hats should not be worn. All people should wear sandals and go barefoot. <laughs> now, it goes on, but you see, of course, he's talking to a much more agrarian audience than what we have now. But you see that he's trying to drive this vision of, of thrift and concentration of energy and sharing and group activity and a very simple uh, lifestyle. Um, he said the, uh, before this, the Christ way and the Gandhi way give all, each for all and all for each. And so also does Yagoda, way of seeking happiness by making all others happy. These three are the only ways of burning the roots of depression and stabilizing the economic condition of the world. Also, they are the surest methods of destroying crime, poverty, and wars. Okay, so now we're going around barefoot or in sandals. And education of the children of married couples should be given in community schools by the highly educated parents in the community hall with wooden partitions or under the trees in summer. Meditation, the scientific art of knowing God, should be the ideal aim of all the children. Parents should be satisfied with one child and exercise moderation and self-control in mar marital life. All taxes, the expenses of educating the children, and miscellaneous expenses should be taken from interest on the 250000 Then, when the 25 children grow up, each one should be sent with limited financial help out into the world to earn $10,000 each <laughs> by using concentration supercharged with divine training and the super methods of the divine learned in this ideal colony. Then these children, grown into fully developed men and women, should marry ideal mates educated in divine spiritual communities. These 25 couples should then build other communities as their parents built them. And I won't go on. It's just a couple more paragraphs. But, 
but you get the idea that he had a very clear and a very simple ideal of what a community should be. One time I read in an article of his, and I was reading it, and he said, a community should be 5,200 people, 5,200 people. I thought, oh my goodness, not only is that an awfully large group of people, but it's a very strange number. And I was wondering, does it have some Vedic, astrological, numerological significance to it? And I pondered it for a little bit, and then it struck me. That's not what he said. Somebody was writing down shorthand. He said a community should be 50 to 100 people. So he's talking about small communities where people, where, where human values are able to be sustained. Now, obviously, we're larger than 50 to 100 people here. But we've seen as we, we were at one time larger, maybe another 100 people or 150 people larger than we are now. Where Ananda Village is about 250 people or a little less than that. We saw that if you grow too big, you can't stay cohesive. You begin to fracture into smaller subgroups. And I don't mean there's a natural grouping where people group together with people of the same age or close to or their friends or in the cluster that they live with. That's natural. But if you grow too big, there gets to be a fracturing and a factioning in, in communities. So we need to keep this spiritual community, Ananda communities, relatively small. Now, the first one, this one, needs to be bigger because we needed to generate a big enough model, a big enough footprint to begin to interest people in this. If we had been only 25 couples, 50 people, let's say, and, and some children, so 70 people, there were a lot of experiments like that in the early years when Ananda got started. But none of them lasted, for one thing, because they weren't built on the principles of unselfishness. The other thing is that their footprint was too small at, that, at this time in history for them to gain the kind of momentum and magnetism that made them more able to survive. So I think that this community is a good size. We can get a little bit bigger and we have the housing because we have already, we're not starting from scratch. We're 50 years later into the cycle. We already have people trained in self, selflessness and overcoming the I, my, me, mine tendency. So then with that grouping, you, you're more har uh, harmonious and homogenous and able to be a little bit bigger. But ultimately, as we spread out, we should keep our communities, relatively speaking, not, not too big. Okay, so I want to talk about a few of the lessons that Ananda has learned in the last 50 years. The first is, 
that the community has to be, that, that this community is based on and communities need to be based on the search for God and on the deep, sincere practice of sadhana, especially meditation. We've had many people come over the years wanting some advice about how to start their community. And we couldn't, in many cases, really give them the advice that they needed to become cohesive because their communities were not based on the principle of unselfishness. Some were based on the principle of solar power. We're going to build a solar power community. Well, that's a nice little thing to do. Ananda is building, to a large extent, a solar power community. But if that's your ultimate goal, That doesn't take you anywhere. One time Swami was invited to a conference on communities. And no, he had at that time, this was maybe eight or 10 years into the Ananda. He had at that time, the only successful community of all the speakers who were invited to speak. But he was pretty much ignored because one got up and then very, pompous and uh, clear and intellectual tone said, yes, we've really studied this and we're going to need somebody who understands how to grow food sources from algae. So we're looking for an expert in algae uh, farming methods. And we're going, and he had a list of about 10 of these experts that they needed. And it sounded all very, wow. That sounds just wonderful. I, it never got off the ground. Swami based Ananda on people, on people values. People are more important than things. That's another thing that we've understood. But unless there is a higher principle involved, unless there is a higher goal involved, how are you going to get to the first principle of community living, which is to grow from selfishness to unselfishness. If all you're doing is to reinforce I, my, me, mine, and I need some experts to really make that possible, how you, you can't hold it together. And so sadhana, deep, sincere, individual sadhana, because that is both the way that we expand our consciousness and with the expansion of consciousness it becomes the oil in the mechanism of society that allows things to run smoothly and harmoniously second thing is cooperation and harmony once you have that oil in the machinery of being together then automatically you begin to have cooperation and harmony. We have, I don't know, attended in the hundreds, if not thousands, of meetings. I don't even want to, I, I don't want to go there. But all of those meetings basically start out with the question of what is trying to happen. How can we best do that? 
none of those meetings except for a little bit in the very first year of the community. That's what I mean by we can grow bigger because now people are trained in the principles of unselfishness. In a group that was not trained in that, then those early meetings were, I need this and I need this and, and it all, it never went anywhere. After the first year, we caught the principle of deep sadhana, committed people trying to break down their own limitations of ego. And when that began to happen, all of the meetings became, became harmonious. They became the question of what is trying to happen here. And people would have differences of opinion about that, of course. But nobody was saying, I come here representing a group of people and I'm not going to budge off of this. I don't care what you say. I don't care whether it's immoral. I don't care whether I have to lie and cheat in order to get my way. I'm going to do it. That's politics in America right now or the world because people are not asking what is the best for everyone? What is the all for all? What is trying to happen? And so when we ask that question, there automatically becomes harmony and also the decisions that come out of that, as Davy was saying, they become expansive. They become decisions around, well, you know, I really need a house, but I think that family needs that house more than I do. What's trying to happen here? We're trying to expand the consciousness. And so virtually all decisions at Ananda, if not unanimous, are, are by the great majority of consensus decisions. Because if we can't get there, then we go back and say, maybe we're not asking the right questions here. We're not understanding what's trying to happen. You see, the whole of it is trying to live by the will of the divine as opposed to your own individual will. And so if you can't get to a consensus, that means that somehow you aren't hearing the will of the divine clearly enough. And therefore, you need to keep chewing on it until you do. Now, I'm talking about meetings at Ananda, but this is, these are universal principles. Whether you live here or elsewhere in community or not in community, these principles are universal. The living according to the will of God and doing your best to hear that and in whoever else you're in interaction with to try to get that as a group, that produces harmony and cooperation. And along with it, it produces the kind of lifestyle that people would love to have. It produces peace. It produces a sense of security. It produces no crime. We've never had a violent crime at Ananda that I know of. We've had very, very few nonviolent crimes, and they generally have consisted of maybe a teenager trying to shoplift something because, I don't know, he's trying to try out some things, or she. But, but it, crime doesn't exist in Ananda. Now, 
wouldn't America, wouldn't the world like to live in a place that crime does not exist? That friendship, like the song that we heard, is there anywhere on earth perfect friendship, noble birth? You know, there is a place on earth and it's created by the consciousness of the social way getting out of selfishness into unselfishness. Finally, the two, three other things I want to just touch on, then we're going to answer some questions. Ananda, the interactions are based on friendship. It's a family, not an organization. And the interactions are personal in the sense that Davy was saying, where you really sincerely care about each other and sincerely want. And that takes friendship and knowing the other people, knowing what they're thinking, knowing what their needs are. All of us should be our ladies of the free box. When we're thinking about other people, all of us should be thinking about their needs. And you have to know their needs in order to do that. That's the base, basis of friendship. And so Ananda is built. Ananda is not an organization. Davy and I travel all over. If it were an organization, it wouldn't feel like we're always at home wherever we land. We're at home because Ananda is a family and a vibration of that family based on friendship and caring and compassion. And finally, the other two that I thought to mention is freedom and creativity. Swami did not want groupthink. He did not want to impose his will on other people. That's why, as Davy said, he, he didn't go around giving his advice. It was hard to pull from him individual counsel, and it was hard to pull group counsel from him. He wanted us to figure it out. He never, ever said, listen to me because I was with Master. He never said that. He said, if you want to listen to me, maybe I have some more experience, but if I can't convince you that what I'm saying is right, then you're not going to follow it anyway. So he, in, he encouraged us to be creative and to, and to try to solve things on our own. And then finally, the thing that has held Ananda together is perseverance. You can't do this in a day or a week or a year. You have to stay at it. And so whatever you're doing, we have to stay at it over a long period of time. And if we combine all of this, the expansion from selfishness to non-selfishness, the attunement of the individual will with the will of God, and you stick at it for a while, by golly, we'll get there. Okay. So we have a few written questions, but if then people want to just ask them spontaneously, that's fine. And just to remind you, if you have questions from anything we've said or something you've been dying to ask somebody, um, 
not who's going to win the Academy Awards or something like that. But you can put them uh, in the basket out on the main desk. Actually, I'll, I'll answer that for you ahead of time about who's going to win the Academy Awards. <laughs> Two words, who cares? <laughs> Is there a possibility of reincarnation of a guru avatar in the next 10 to 20 years? Will a guru reincarnate soon? Now this person seems a little anxious. I, yeah. I, I don't know whether they figure they have a 10 or 20 year shelf life and they need, need an incarnate guru during that time. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. Uh, there are some very, very high souls. But Swamiji noticed something that when he was in India in 19, uh, like 58 to 62, when he lived there, he met a number of enlightened people, really high, high souls. When he went back later on, they didn't seem to be around anymore. Ananda Ma had gone and many, many others that he has written about. And he said, he thinks that they aren't here because people won't accept their example right now. And so if the consciousness is ready to call a guru and listen to a guru, then of course God will manifest in the form of a guru. But if the consciousness isn't open to that, then why waste his time? It's a lot more comfortable on the astral plane. So, but we aren't talking only about global consciousness. If groups of people choose God, then God will choose those groups of people. And so Ananda, as a group of people, is sincerely wanting to know um, how to live more in tune with God. That might draw a, a master, but I don't think it will. Because at this point, we don't want to mix a second master in with the teachings of, of Paramahansa Yogananda. So we, we don't want that kind of dichotomy, um, and, and which leads us to the next question. But I'll let Davy answer. Yeah. <clears throat> I would also add that Swami shared a story. Uh, there was a young man living in Europe who had read autobiography of a yogi. This was shortly after Master had left the body. And this man came, became, over time, one of the very inspiring monastics in Self-Realization Fellowship, uh, Brother Turiyananda. And Turiyananda was longing for a guru, but was disappointed because Yogananda was no longer in the body. And he went to hear one evening a lecture by I believe it was Swami Ramdas, uh, not the Westerner, but there was an Indian, Swami Ramdas. And he afterwards went up and he said, will you be my guru? He asked him. And Ramdas said, no, I am not your guru. Yogananda is your guru. And the young man said, but Yogananda is dead. And Swami Ramdas said, no, you are dead. Yogananda <laughs> is alive. So. Will a guru reincarnate in the next 20 years? I think the better question to answer is, ask is, 
will you more deeply attune to your guru in the next 20 years? Because masters don't, their work does not end when they leave the body. And Ananda would not exist today. This temple would not exist. All of our global uh, communities and centers would not exist without the living reality of Yogananda and Swami Kriyananda. So no, we don't need, if, you, if you're looking for a guru and Yogananda is not yet your guru, um, you may find one, but why look elsewhere if this is your, if you feel attracted to this lineage because the power of master, and I've heard many people say this and I've felt it myself, Swami's presence is stronger now after he left the body than it was when he was in a body because he isn't confined by that. And so don't look for someone to appear. Look for the appearance in your own heart of God's presence and that will uh, solve your yearning. One other way of putting that is if you think you need to see a guru or an avatar with your senses, then you'll probably only see the outer form, not the essence. So better, as Lahiri said, am I not always with you? Get to know me through your katusta, your spiritual eye. Okay, do you think it's okay to read some Buddhist teaching along with our own? I have found great comfort in reading Pema Chodron. Um, yes, of course, it is fine to read other teachings if, if you don't get confused and take on a mixture of spiritual paths. That's why Master said, especially to the newer people, don't read any other teachings, any other books except mine. Because in the beginning, people get confused. Now, there's a difference outwardly between Buddhist teachings and Master's teachings. For one, Master has much more devotion in his teachings, much more of a personal relationship with the divine than most Buddhist teachings. So if you're, if you're advanced enough and settled enough in the path, then to read something for inspiration is fine. But if you're not settled in your particular spiritual path, to read other teachings that may confuse you is not right. right. So I would say, is it right to eat an apple? Of course it's right to eat an apple, but wait until it's ripe. Don't eat when it's green. I really don't have anything to add to that. So we'll take one question from all of you and then we'll take a little break. Can you give us some specific, perhaps, things we can do in our daily sadhana to increase our attunement and listening to our guru? For what? To increase our attunement. And listening to what to our guru is asking okay. of us. That's a good question. Thank you. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> which seems to be generally the pattern. <laughs> the more you can get your consciousness up to the higher spiritual centers and especially the 
the spiritual eye, the more sensitive you'll become. So um, do a lot of things in order to bring your energy up. Kriya, of course, brings it up. Listening to Om brings it up. Um, repeating something at the spiritual eye brings it up. There was a beautiful article by um, Diksha um, that came out where she read uh, something in Master about a technique where you repeat Om, either spirit, uh, Om Spirit Bliss or Om Christ Bliss. And you do that at the spiritual eye along with the uh, breathing. And so she said that she was on a long flight and a little anxious, so she did it for 12 or 14 hours on the long flight, and it really worked. Well, that's, anything will work if you do it with intensity and it brings your consciousness up. So uh, I don't want to undercut Friday's class, but the whole of the inward path is to bring the energy up from the lower chakras, which represent materialistic consciousness, to the higher chakras, which represent spiritual consciousness. And when you get your energy up, then you can hear and see the guru and the guru's teachings much more. So work on getting your energy focused at the spiritual eye. Master said that the very fastest way of progressing toward to God is to keep your energy constantly at the spiritual eye. And I'll just add briefly, um, in this article that we quoted, Master talked about three paths to Christ consciousness, to self-realization. One was the social path. One was the path of self-discipline, constantly be working with the ego. And the third was the path of meditation. But we need to understand these aren't separate paths. And I think really the strongest way to feel the guru's presence is to integrate them in our social interaction. Have your little antenna up all the time. What are you trying to tell me, Master? Everyone keeps telling me that I talk too much, uh, but I don't think that's true. Well, if everyone's telling you that, maybe that's the guru telling you that. And on and on and on. Um, so that's, again, the beauty of the community life, is that you get feedback. And don't just think it's coming from individuals. It may be God trying to tell you this is something you need to work on. So the social path, the uh, self-discipline path, when you start getting that feedback, work on those things. Don't think, well, it's just the way I am. No. <laughs> Unless you're rooted in God's joy, then you're not who you are. You're living a fake life. You're living a, an, as an alias. But, and then finally, meditation. So all three work together. If you only go the meditative way, it's hard. It's hard to get that feedback. But, you know, um, just a little example. This morning when we were preparing for the class, I, I looked at that affirmation from Affirmations for Self-Healing. Uh, all the world is my friend and the human race my family. With God's kindness, I embrace all people. And I thought, oh, what a beautiful affirmation. And then I opened up a book to see something else, and a little slip of paper fell out that had that affirmation written on it that had been there for years. 
And I just thought, Master, you're watching, aren't you? <laughs> so it, just of all the time, you know, I know you love horses, Vandana. I'm sure your horses are channels for God for you. Don't ignore it. Your children, your coworkers, everything that you do, the people you serve at the Expanding Light, your friends, just use everything in your life to remind you of God's presence there all the time. And communities are great feedback, self-discipline, then you work on those aspects of yourself and then take that into meditation and offer it all up. So it's a beautiful integrated whole. And um, we're so lucky to have been shown this path. Okay, we're gonna take a little break and then come back in five minutes and we'll meditate together.